All right, today we are going to return to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and before we do, if you want to know about Russia, um, it's cold there, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of people there who need Jesus, and uh, I'm going to write up a little memoirs thing, and there'll probably be a table at the missions conference with some stuff on Russia, and so um, either next week after the service or if you go to the missions conference, which I'm sure all of you will, um, you'll be able to uh, find out a little bit more about that. It was a great time, and... Uh, they had me teaching six hours a day and preaching on Friday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And so they kind of rung me out and sent me back. And so if I'm a little spacey, it's because I am. There's uh, Samara, Russia is exactly 12 time zones away. So I'm, this is the middle of the night right now. And uh, I'm used to sleeping right now. And so <clears throat> I'm trying to get used to being awake when I'm supposed to and sleeping when I'm supposed to. In 1954, uh, Dr. Jack MacArthur started a church that was then called Harry MacArthur Memorial, which later became Calvary Bible Church. It first started in Glendale, and then they bought this piece of property, um, which you know used to be all the way out to the street, which we wish we still had. But um, we had the whole piece of property here, and they started this church here in Burbank. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why plant another church? I mean, you've got churches all over the place, and um, why another one? Well, there's a simple reason, and that reason is expository preaching. You can open a phone book in any city of any size and find lots of churches. That's not a problem. As a matter of fact, some of the nicest churches with the nicest church buildings uh, can be found, and you could go there. But usually, out of all those churches that you might go to in in any one given town, there is usually only a very small remnant that do expository preaching. And this is one of the main reasons why this church was planted. This is a reason why this church is different from other churches. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy 4, where we are going to look at the good servant's preaching. We're going to find out what expository preaching is what a, an expository sermon is and isn't, and, and why it's different and what it seeks to do. So please follow along as we read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and following. Paul says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance, for it is this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on a living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. 
For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. So this morning, we are going to look at a single verse, but a verse that is very important, probably one of the most single important verses when it comes to the whole topic of expository preaching. Now, most of you have probably heard that term. You probably know that um, we do expository preaching here. But yet, if pushed to define what exactly is expository preaching, some of you would have a hard time defining it. Some of you might think, well, you know, expository preaching is, you know, preaching verse by verse. But that's not uh, a complete definition. You can preach verse by verse and do an expository sermon, but you don't have to. Some might think, well, expository sermons are different because they aren't topical. But you can do a topical expository sermon. So, expository preaching is not necessarily verse by verse. It's not necessarily topical versus verse by verse. It's a certain kind of preaching. And so, this morning, what I want to do is I want to explain to you the difference between expository preaching and other kinds of preaching so that you can know why this church was planted and what makes this church different from other churches, most other churches in all the world. And so, the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to define three terms for you. Three terms, and if you have notes and you want to take notes, you can write these down. The first term is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, probably a term that you don't use very much um, unless you're in the ministry. The second term is exegesis, maybe another term that you don't use very much, or if ever. Uh, a term that you might have heard um, if you've been around here for a little while, but when pressed, you really don't know what that means either. And then the third term is exposition. And you've heard that too, but you probably don't know what that is. And so we, we throw out all these little Christian jargon terms and we use them and you get used to tolerating them, but no one knows what they mean. And so this morning I want to tell you, because all three of these terms are directly related to what makes an expository sermon as opposed to just speaking. Let's just talk about hermeneutics. This word comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, which appears in the New Testament. A word that is derived from the Greek god Hermes. Now, Hermes was the god of language. And so hermeneuo came to mean to explain language or to translate language. That is to interpret what language means. Then our word hermeneutics came from that Greek term to explain or interpret. Let me just give you a couple examples from the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. They're just examples where you can see how the word is translated. In Luke 24, 27, when Jesus is speaking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, this is what the text says in verse 27, Luke 24, 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That word explained is the Greek word hermeneuo. In John 1, verse 38, Jesus 
It's, the text says, turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, and then there's this little parenthetical note, which when hermeneuo means teacher, which when translated means teacher. That's how the word is used there. It's translated, translated. And then in Hebrews 7.2, uh, speaking of Melchizedek, says, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all his spoils, first of all, by the translation of his name, meaning king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, where he explains that Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that's the Hebrew word king of righteousness. And he explains, he interprets. So that's how the word is used. And so the field of study dealing with how to interpret the Bible is the field of hermeneutics. And so if you hear somebody say hermeneutics, just think how to study the Bible. And specific hermeneutics tries to define principles for studying the Bible. That is to study the Bible in the most objective way. Now, what do I mean by objective? Well, let me just give you an example. This is in contrast to subjective. Objective seeks to find truth outside of oneself. Subjective tries to find truth within oneself. So look at verse 13, the verse we're going to look at here in a minute. Look at verse 13. He says, until I come. Notice that's a time reference. That's an objective observation. He says, give attention to. Oh, there's a command. Oh, look it. The command is followed by three phrases. The public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and teaching. Those are objective things that you can look in your Bible and see. You can see where I got that information. Why? Because the truth doesn't come from me. It comes from the text. And you can look at the text and see that that's what it says. Now, here's a subjective interpretation. Well, you read the verse and go, you know, I think God wants me to take a vacation to the Cayman Islands. And I think he, he probably wants me to bring a good friend and maybe read a good book there. You see, you're thinking, that's there? That has nothing to do with the trip to the Cayman Islands. That information was read into the passage. It was subjective. It came from the interpreter, not from the text. So hermeneutics seeks to find principles like context, the priority of the original language, cross-reference, um, the checking principle, um, cultural customs, uh, theme, genre. This, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and to find principles that will help you find out exactly what the text says, what it means by what it says, and what we are to do with it because of what it means by what it says. And so that's what hermeneutics is. Hermeneutics is, for the most part, like digging tools. We have tools to dig with in the scriptures. But a very closely related term to that is exegesis. And where hermeneutics is the principles or tools to get at the truth in the scriptures, exegesis is the application of those tools. So if a hermeneutical principle was a shovel, exegesis would be digging. And so exegesis is applied hermeneutics. And the word exegesis means to take out of. I mean, you think of an excavator, 
Same type of thing. It takes dirt out of something. Think of excavation, digging in the scriptures, seeking in the scriptures. So hermeneutics says, here's the tools. Exegesis is getting to work and digging. Now, exegesis is the opposite of another term called eisegesis. And where exegesis means to take out of the text information that is there, eisegesis is reading into the text something that is not there, like a trip to the Cayman Islands. That would be eisegesis, reading something into the text that the original author and the original audience could have never understood, could have never figured out. What we're after is what the original author and the original audience understood the text to mean by what it says. We are not here to try and find out what it means to me. That comes later. After you find out what the author meant it to mean, then you can find out how you're going to apply it. But you don't start with, oh, you know, it means this to me. So we have hermeneutics, the tools. We have exegesis, the application of the tools. And then one last term, exposition. Exposition. Probably most of us um, know what it means to expose something. That's a pretty common word. Or maybe we've gone to an expose. Or maybe you've gone to an exhibition. Those are places where things are displayed. You know, products people want to sell. They, they expose them. They have an exposition. They, they display things so people can see what they are and understand what they are. And that's what um, exposition literally is. It's the exposing of the truths found in the Word of God. Hermeneutics is the tools. Exegesis is the application of the tools. Exposition is to display what you've dug out of the Word of God. Now, all three of those terms can be combined, and I'll just give you um, one more word picture so you can kind of see how this is. Let's say you're, you're the pearl diver, and you... Um, you, you have tools to go get your, your pearls. Well, of course, if you know pearls, pearls are found in oysters, and oysters are found at the bottom of the sea. You just don't pick them up. And so you have these tools. You have a boat and a motor, and you, know, you have some fins and a wetsuit and a snorkel and, and a mask, and you have a, maybe a knife, and uh, you, know, you have a bag to collect the oysters in. So you take your boat, and you take it out to the ocean. You dive down there. You collect the oysters. You bring them back up. You sit down. You open up the oysters, get some hot sauce, eat some raw, and then you pick out the pearls out of there. Now, as you're doing that, all of your equipment is like your hermeneutical principles. When you use your equipment to get at the pearls, that's your exegesis. But then you've got some pearls. Now, you're a pearl diver because that is how you make your living. You must sell those pearls. So what you do is you take the pearls, you clean them up, then you... You know, make jewelry and earrings and necklaces and things like that. And maybe you put them on a black velvet, piece of black velvet and display them. That is like exposition. You are now taking before the people the efforts of your labors. And that is the goal of expository preaching. To use objective principles to take the truth from the text and display it to God's people so they can see what God says so they can see what God means by what he says, and so they leave knowing what they are supposed to do because of what God says. Now, having said all that, let's look at the verse, and we'll see why this verse is significant. Now, <clears throat> expository preaching is, again, 
not related to the size of text or how one progresses through the Bible. It's related to how one approaches a passage and how one takes information from that passage and displays it. Let me give you a definition by John R. W. Stott, and then we'll look at our verse. In his book, Between Two Worlds, a book on preaching, he gives this definition to expository preaching, and it's very good. And as I go through this definition, just think about the things we've just talked about and see how you see them in this definition. He says, quote, It is my contention that all true Christian preaching is expository preaching. Of course, if by an expository sermon is meant a verse-by-verse explanation of a lengthy passage of Scripture, then indeed it is only one possible way of preaching. But this would be a misuse of the word. Properly speaking, exposition has a much broader meaning. It refers to the content of the sermon, biblical truth, rather than the style, a running commentary. To expound Scripture is to bring out of the text, what is there, and to expose it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. The opposite of exposition is imposition, which is to impose on the text what is not there. But the text in question could be a verse or a sentence, or a single word. It could be equally a paragraph, or a chapter, or a whole book. The size of the text is immaterial, so long as it is biblical. What matters is what we do with it. Whether it is long or assured, our responsibility as expositors is to open it up in such a way that it speaks its message clearly, plainly, accurately, relevantly, Without addition, subtraction, or falsification. In expository preaching, the biblical text is neither a conventional introduction to a sermon on a largely different theme, or a convenient peg in which to hang a rag bag of miscellaneous thoughts, but is a master which dictates and controls what is said. End quote. Now, when I read the scriptures at the beginning of the sermon, I don't read them because I want to then say what I want to say. I read them so you know the context, and so you know what God has said, and so that you know that what I'm saying is what God has said, and I'm just trying to help you understand what God has said. I'm not here to say, well, you know, you know, the angel rolled away the stone, and you need to roll away the stone of anxiety. You need to roll away the stone of fear. You need to roll away the stone of doubt and anger. You know, I mean, that preaches good. But the stone has nothing to do with anxiety and fear and doubt. The stone is a stone. The tomb is a tomb. The angel's an angel. And the angel rolled away the stone from the tomb. And that's what it meant. And that's what the original author meant it to mean. And that's what the original audience understood it to mean. And so we must be careful not to go to a passage and make it say something that we want it to say. That is eisegesis, imposition. That is disexegesis. So look at 4.13. And this is a great verse. I love this verse. And too bad we don't have very much time. Okay. Look at verse 14. He says, until I come. 
Now, this is the same thing if you looked back in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul had already said he was hoping to come to Timothy before long. And the whole point is he's saying, until I come, he gives him a time reference. Why? Because when Paul got there, he would then take over the position of the main preacher. But until he comes, you, Timothy, I want you to give your attention to something. And this term, give attention, means to focus one's mind on something, to to be attentive to something, to apply oneself to something, to devote thought and effort. In this case, it is to preaching and specifically expository preaching. He says, Timothy, that's what I want you to do. And what's neat is, is in the text before us, he lays out three specific characteristics of an expository sermon. He's already said, if you look in verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. He is already going to say in verse 15, take pains with these things. And verse 16, play close attention to yourself and to your teaching and persevere in these things. But what's neat about verse 13 is he tells us how, how to do it. And so let's look at how to do it. The first thing he says is give attention to the public reading of Scripture. If you were to go through the Old Testament, for instance, in Exodus 24, you would find out that Moses stood up and read God's word to the people. If you looked at Deuteronomy 31, you'd find out that Moses stood up and read the whole lot to the people. You would find out, if you looked at Joshua 8, um, that Joshua stood up and read the whole law in front of the people. It was common for Jews to read God's Word. I mean, there wasn't any printing press. People didn't have their own copy of the Bible. And so they were dependent upon those who had the Word of God to read it to them. And that was standard. But what is important to note about these three terms here, this public reading of Scripture to teaching and or exhortation and teaching, is that each one has a definite article in front of it, a the It literally would read, give your attention to the reading, the exhortation, and the teaching. If you have an NASB and you look in the text, you will see that the words public and of Scripture are in italics. They're in italics because they don't appear in the text, but they're implied because of this word, the. He's not just talking about, well, make sure you read something. He's not saying, you know, make sure you stand up and read the paper or Shakespeare or something else fun. No, this is a specific kind of reading. The reading of the Word of God. That's why it is the reading, the public reading of Scripture. And it is the exhortation, the public exhortation of Scripture, and the teaching. So he does not say just, I want you to read anything, but give yourself to the reading of the Word of God. Now we need to think about this. When you, what you have in your, your hands here, most of you probably, is a Bible. And why do we call this the Word of God? It's because this is the Word of God. If you want to have God speak to you, you open this up and God speaks. This is how you hear God. He uses His Holy Spirit and He uses His Word to speak to you. And so the preacher who is preaching the word is God's voice to the people of God. And that is why God wants 
his word read so people can hear his voice. But that's not all. Look down. He says not only to the reading, but exhortation. This is a word that means to admonish, to appeal to, or to address somebody. It's not just enough to just read a passage and say, okay, let's go home. I mean, you can all read the passage. What must be done is the truth of the passage must be taken from the verse and explained and interpreted so that it is brought to bear on your conscience so that you come face to face with God's truth so that when you leave here, you know what God has said to you and you leave here knowing what you must do in light of what God has said to you. That is the goal of expository preaching. To bring people face to face, to exhort them in the word of God, to admonish them. And sometimes when you come to the word of God, it rebukes you. Sometimes you come and it encourages you. Sometimes you come and it comforts you. And sometimes you come and it makes you feel very guilty. But you are to be brought up short, face to face with God's truth. So not just reading, but Reading and exhortation. The third term. Notice what the text says. To teaching. Now this word is similar to exhortation. You can exhort when you're teaching. But this term is a little different because this describes systematic instruction. Do you ever wonder why a lot of times when I'm preaching, I'll stop and go, well, let's look at a few more verses. And we'll look at a few more. Why do I do that? Because I want you to understand that it's not just this verse that seems to be teaching it. But when you look at other scriptures, the scriptures clearly teach that. That you are able to see clearly that God has taught something in his word. It is to expand and explain upon doctrine. That's why some... um, Versions have translated this to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. It's it's to develop the doctrines of the Word of God, to teach them in a systematic way. That is what teaching is. So when you leave here, you know the source of the information, the Word of God. You leave here having been confronted with the truth of the Word of God. And you leave here thoroughly understanding that the word of God as a whole teaches the doctrine that is in this text. And if that happens, then you've heard an expository sermon. You have not heard an expository sermon. If the preacher gets up, now listen to this, and preaches a perfectly accurate sermon, but from the wrong text. If If a preacher comes and reads a verse and says what he wants to say, he has sinned against 2 Timothy 2.15, which commands him to accurately handle the word of truth. And reading things into a passage that aren't there should cause one, according to Paul and the Holy Spirit, to be ashamed before God, because you have not handled accurately the word of truth. Now, let's look at a couple examples of expository preaching. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't know where that is, find the book of Psalms. Go to the left, go through the book of Job, and it goes Esther, 
Job and Psalms, and right before that is Nehemiah. So several books before there, you'll find it. Let me just give you a little background about Nehemiah. Now, all three of these books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, um, this is just a crash course here. We've got a a minute. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are all historical books, and that's why they appear at the end of the historical books, but they happen at the end of Israel's history. They happen at the end. This is after the Babylonian captivity, after they were taken captive, after um, you know Nebuchadnezzar took him captive, after Nebuchadnezzar was you know died, and after the Babylonian Empire fell at the hands of the Medo Persians, and Cyrus the leader arose, and Cyrus heard the prophecy of Isaiah, according to Josephus, that um, that that. Um, Isaiah prophesied, you can read it in Isaiah 45 and 46, it's amazing. Isaiah, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, called Cyrus by name and predicted he would let the people of Israel come back to the land. And so Josephus says that when when Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, somebody came to him, and some people think it was Ezra or somebody, I don't know who, but somebody came to him and read him the prophecy of Isaiah, he was so amazed that God actually predicted his name before he was born. He did everything that the prophecy said, and he let them return. And so when they came back to the land, of course, Israel was in ruins, and it needed to be rebuilt. And so Nehemiah was the man that God used to help rebuild the walls. Ezra was the man that God helped to rebuild the temple. Both Nehemiah and Ezra were used to rebuild the spiritual lives of the people, especially Ezra. And in between, halfway through the book of Ezra, between Ezra chapter 6 and 7, there is a 60-year time gap, and that is when the story of Esther takes place. She is one of the the captives who, after the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, she chose, or her people chose, to stay with them and not return. And so that's where that story fits in. But during this time, when God is trying to rebuild his people and rebuild Jerusalem, he raised up six significant individuals. Ezra, the governor. Ezra, the scribe, a man described as skilled in the law of Moses. He raised up Zerubbabel, another governor, and also Joshua, the high priest. And you can read about those characters quite a bit in the book of Zechariah. And then he raised up two prophets, which would be Haggai and Zechariah, who God sent to encourage the people under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua to get with it and to obey God, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and have a spiritual transformation. What's neat about Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 is this is the climax of of Nehemiah's book, where there is this incredible revival that happens under the leadership of Ezra. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Nehemiah 8 and look at verse 1 and follow along. And this is just a great text. He says in verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in the front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. I love that. The people request God's word to be brought and read. I love how it's described. Not that Moses gave to Israel, 
but the Lord gave to Israel. They understood it was the word of God. Verse 2, Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now think about this. It says they were there early morning. So that means all the people and all the surrounding area of Jerusalem got up early enough to walk to the water gate and stand there in the open square to be there by early morning. And they stood there and listened to a six-hour sermon. Don't ever complain. A six-hour sermon. They stood in the hot sun and listened to the Word of God being taught. And it says they were all attentive. They were starving for the Word of God. Now, let's go on. Look at verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium just like this one. I don't know if it was just like it. Maybe it was wood. I don't know. Wood or oak like this one, maybe. Um, which they made in, for that purpose. And beside him stood all these people you could name your kids after. And then verse 5, it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people... For he was standing above all the people, just like I'm above you. You wonder why um, pulpits uh, were elevated, even in Puritan times, they really elevated them. If you've gone to one of the media, the churches in New England got these little spiral things where, you know, you're way up in this crow's nest looking down on the people. And they, they took that from this verse right here. That the word of God is to be elevated. So the preaching of the word of God is to be elevated. So they would take these pulpits and elevate them to show reverence for the word of God. Verse 6, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered and said, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. He's describing now what happened during this time period, this six-hour exposition. Verse 7, Also, all these people you can name your kids after, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And this is the key verse. Look at verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating or interpreting to give the sense so that they understood the reading, the reading of the word of God. That is biblical exposition right there. And from that time on, that became the pattern in the synagogues. Do you remember what happened in, uh, in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus uh, entered the, you probably remember the story, he entered the synagogue and, um, and while he was in the synagogue, it says as he was accustomed to do, they, the attendant handed him the, it says the book is really a scroll, and he opens up the scroll and he reads this messianic prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And then he folds it back up, hands it to the attendant, and then what was common then, he would sit down, and he would then teach or preach. And it says all the eyes were fixed upon them. And then he explained that that verse that he read from Isaiah was being fulfilled in their hearing. Then he went to develop the doctrine of that verse and said, exposed them and their sin 
and their hardness of heart, and then they tried to throw him off the cliff and kill him. But that was the standard. You read, you explain, and you apply. Turn to Acts chapter 8. We'll see this again. Acts chapter 8. And this is when God sends Philip to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. Most of us probably are familiar with the story. In verse 30, this is what happened. Philip ran up, this is Acts 8 verse 30, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Notice, the eunuch here is a very well-educated man. This is like one of the, the king's top advisors. He knew how to read. What he needed is, is someone to explain the truth from the text and apply it to his life. Preaching, expository preaching. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 17. When Paul is preaching at um, Thessalonica to the Thessalonians, this is what the text says. It was Paul's custom to reason with them from the scriptures. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Here we see elements of preaching. What? You start from the scriptures. You you explain the scriptures, what they mean, how they apply. You give evidence, you develop the doctrine, you proclaim Christ. That is expository preaching. And that is what we're supposed to do in the church. That is what this verse in 1 Timothy is talking about. And expository preaching is not some new thing that a bunch of conservatives got together and invented to put a strain on preachers. This is the standard thing that the church has always done. And some people think, well, you know, I mean, what about in the Dark Ages? Well, no, they not much of it was going on then. But even in the early church fathers, listen to what Justin Martyr wrote. Now, he was a man who wrote shortly after John the Apostle died. This is, you know, a few years after John the Apostle died, maybe 125 A.D. This is what he wrote in his book called The First Apology. He's describing what went on normally in the early church. Quote, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, that is the New Testament letters, and the writings of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has finished, the president, this is the preacher, speaks, instructing 
and exhorting the people to imitate the good deeds, end quote. Expository preaching. People all often ask me, do you think expository preaching is the best way to preach? I say, no, I think it's the only way to preach. The only way to preach. I don't have anything to say. And I can't sin against the text by not handling it accurately. So I must take information from the text within its original context, just as the author said, I must bring it to the people of God so that God can speak to you and then you can deal with God, not me. If I come to a passage and I use it as a, just a, uh, you know, a diving board and I, you know, begin the sermon, you know, read a verse and then go off on some thoughts, then you can take it or leave it. You might as well take a nap. But if I come to you and I tell you what God says and what God means and what God wants you to do, then you have to deal with God, not me. And if you disobey what God says, then you have to deal with God about that. That is why we always do expository preaching. If you hear someone read a text and wander off into the woods of his own imagination, he is not doing an expository sermon. I want you to leave here saying, God wants me to do this. I, I, I need to do this. The Bible says this. God's word says that. And I have learned from the scriptures this to be true. Therefore, I have to do it. Not, oh, Jack Hughes told us some good stories and, you know, that's fun. So as you leave here today, what have we learned about this whole business of expository preaching? We've learned about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are the tools for getting the most objective information from the text. We've learned exegesis is the application of hermeneutics. We've learned that exposition is to display the gems mined from the pages of Scripture. We've learned that it's important to read the Scriptures in church, to explain and exhort people to bring them face to face with the Word of God. And then to teach them systematically so they are thoroughly convinced that this is what the Bible as a whole teaches. It should give you a better idea for what to pray for with your leaders. Because all of us, you know, whether you're teaching first graders or high schoolers or you're up here preaching, this is the responsibility of a teacher to bring from the text information and apply it to people's lives. You should realize that to hear an expository sermon is to hear God's word, God's word. And that it is a very important thing to hear God's word. It is a necessary thing and it is what God uses to save us. It's what God uses to change us. And it's what God uses to transform us into the image of Christ. And that we cannot live without it for we must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I just pray that this church will always have an expositor in the pulpit, whether I'm here or not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what Paul taught Timothy. Lessons that are important for all of us to understand. We thank you for our dear brother and saint, Jack MacArthur, who planted this church because he understood the importance of expository preaching. We thank you for the men that you have had in this pulpit who have preached your word faithfully and accurately, who have plied it with a diligence to the hearts of the people.
Father, we thank you for the people who have heard you speak through your word and who have been saved and who have been changed and transformed. We just pray that you would continue to do that through Calvary Bible Church, that all of us, Father, would pray diligently for our leaders here, especially for our new ones. And Father, we just ask that you would make this church a light in the community. Father, that we would be strong in doctrine, that we would be great in love, that we would be diligent to evangelize. And Father, that we would be most importantly giving you glory for all the things that you are doing in and through us. We pray this in your name. Amen.